A few hours after doing this recording, um, I went out for a ride and hit a big rock on a trail and my bike rented itself. And I was like, ah, trail. So if you have no idea what I'm talking about, this is the episode for you. Uh, it's a doozy. It's one that we really enjoyed making and uh, I learned a ton. And uh, on a totally unrelated note, if you also learn tons or even a little bit from listening to the show, I really encourage you to check out our sponsorship page at patreon.com slash endurance innovation of course the link will be in the notes and uh, show us some love hi everyone i'm andrew and i'm michael and this is the endurance innovation podcast Hey everyone, and uh, welcome back to Endurance Innovation. Uh, this episode came about from uh, me discovering some some uh, blind spots in my own knowledge about something that I thought I had a quite a solid grasp on, and that is uh, bicycle geometry. So, you know, I've always, well, not always, but in recent years, build myself as someone who understands what bikes are all about and uh, understands, you know, the aerodynamic implications and the fit implications. Um, but after reading an article by Dan Emfield at a slow twitch, which I'll link to, cause I think it's an interesting one. There was, there, there was a way that he uses to think about bike geometry, which I thought was useful and exposed some of my newfound ignorance. So in the, in light of that, I, uh, I reached out to, you know, the experts that I know in my case, this was David Tilbury Davis. And I asked if he could put me in touch with, um, an expert in geometry and, he put me in touch with Tom Sturdy of Sturdy Bicycles, who is a, a custom frame builder and uh, just the guy to have on the show to talk about geometry and a few other things. Tom, thank you very much for coming on. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So, Tom, let's start with your kind of your background. Introduce yourself and uh, what you're all about and what Sturdy Cycles uh, does. Uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, as you say, I'm, uh, I, I make custom, custom or made to measure um, frames. Um, my, my background, uh, is I never really escaped the bicycle industry one way or another, um, <laughs> worked with bikes all my life. Uh, I, you know, way, way back for when I was a, a kid getting a, you know, Saturday shop job, you know, um, uh, fixing punctures and the like in the local bike shop. Um, and, um, <clears throat> yeah, I've, I've worked in bike shops or the bike industry ever since then in one way or another. Um, uh, my, uh, so I studied um, aerospace engineering um, as an undergraduate, and um, whilst I was a student, I, I started um, competing at a, uh, a reasonable, uh, technically professional, I think that's a loose term really, uh, certainly it was at the time uh, level in triathlon, there wasn't much money to be made, or at least I wasn't the one making it, that's for sure. Um, uh, yeah, and so I started started competing um, at that sort of level when I was a student, and um basically needed to find a way to remain a student as long as I wanted to do that. So uh, I ended up, um, after I finished uh, uh, my engineering degree, went on and and, um, and read sports biomechanics at master's level. Um, nice. And, and that's, when I, that's when I first started tinkering with bikes in the sense that a, a bit like you just, you just said, really, I, I sort of, you know, I, I rode bikes and I, I, I understood how to measure what size they were and uh, what size I needed and that sort of thing. And, but I didn't really understand why 
there were the differences that there were. You know, I was in a fortunate enough position that I got given or loaned very nice bikes to ride. Um, and, and, you know, on paper, they were all super bikes, but, but I definitely noticed differences between them. Um, and some of them just didn't really make sense to me. So I, I first started thinking about frame building on a, on a purely selfish basis, really, uh, you know, just, just to, just to try and mess around and, and understand what was making the difference that I could feel, you know, whilst I was out riding. Um, and, uh, I, I did a lot of very bad bikes that way. Um, and, <laughs> uh, yeah, it wasn't, wasn't for a few years after that when, when I was, um, uh, I was involved in a, a, in a, an accident whilst I was out training and I, I, um, uh, ended up with me having a load of wrist surgery, which sort of put me out of racing for, for long enough that, um, I, I needed to look for something different. Um, and that's when I started, um, thinking about building frames for people a bit more seriously. And that's essentially when I, when I started, uh, building frames, you know, on a, on a publicly, if you like. Um, uh, and yeah, I've, I've been doing that, um, pretty much full time ever since I, I, I have also, so I, I have another, um, role, which is, is not unrelated. Um, uh, it's, it's on pause at the moment because of the various, craziness that's going around the world and uh, uh but, yep. but yeah so i also teach um bicycle design and, and manufacturing um at a place called the bicycle academy which is near where i live uh, in 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 the uk where we, we teach a range of um a range of students from you know complete novices through to you know, manufacturers who want to train their staff and that sort of thing so um uh yeah and, and i still still produce um so I was in, I'm really busy at the moment, actually. Um, um, produce frames alongside that role, um, uh, and and all of my bikes are um, are quite, or, or if you like, my design philosophy is is quite heavily based in in that early experimenting that I did. You know, um, really trying to focus in on on trying to optimize this geometry that we're talking about to an individual rider. That that's that's really at the heart of what I think um, custom bikes are all about, um, and of course, of course, there's the other stuff that goes with it, and 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 producing a thing that is, you know, that you can't get anywhere else, and and that sure. uses technology that's unique in some way, and there's all of that as well. But um, but deep down, what's at the bottom of my process is that uh, understanding what an individual rider needs, uh, and then translating that into uh, a, a geometry that, that's going to give them the right experience when they're out on the road. I am continually amazed by the number of engineers that get drawn into the bike industry for something that <laughs> it just it, on the surface, you look at it and you've got two triangles and two wheels and that's about it. But there's so much nuance and so much that goes into having a bike that, that feels right. And it's very difficult to define a lot of that. And for me, this was a huge black art, uh, very similar to wheel building where I just didn't understand. Or yeah. like Michael said, it was just, I realized my own ignorance with this. Yeah. I mean, for that, uh, yeah, that, that, that kind of gray area, to be honest, that's, that's the appeal for me. That's the bit I love. Um, there's another, there's other aspects to it as well. You know, I, uh, there aren't many products in modern consumerism where 
as one person, you can be entirely involved in every part of that product's life cycle. And, and that's a big appeal for me as well. You know, as an engineer, it's quite fun uh, and challenging and interesting to be able to meet a customer, get a brief from them, you know, have some initial ideas, uh, design something, engineer it, validate it, test it, assemble it, you know, paint it, and then give it back to them. And and uh, so yeah, on the on the face of it, the bicycle is this wonderfully simple, elegant thing. Uh, and but if you want to, you can really delve into it in in uh, probably a, a painful amount of detail. Um, you can kind of the. the there's no end to it really. And so, um, yeah, I find that really interesting as a, uh, yeah, as a, as a challenge, if you like, you know, it's what, it, what, it's what keeps me motivated really to, to do it. I, I don't see what I do as just churning out the same bike each time. So, um, yeah, that's definitely the appeal for me. And I kind of look at aerodynamics the same way where every athlete's different, has different requirements, different abilities. So it's a continual challenge um, to get someone optimized for that. And I'm sure it's the same thing with you where there's no perfect bike because every person is different. And this is really becoming the age where customization and, and a true bespoke design is possible now because there's all these uh, fit systems that you can use to get geometry data or you can 3D print or you can do all these other custom things that five or 10 years ago just would not allow this kind of latitude in the design. So it's it's really interesting to see someone embracing this level of customization. Yeah, I think, um, well, uh, thank you. But, uh, uh, you know, it is, it is really important. And I think the other thing is that, you know, uh, as as uh, you know, as cyclists or triathletes, you know, anyone, anyone who rides a bike, the, the general population who are using these things are getting more and more, uh, or better and better educated about, about it as well. So, so that, that, that in itself is, is forcing a, forcing a change. Um, um, and there's, yeah, there's a lot more of it starting to happen. And I think it's great. It's definitely the way forward. Awesome. Oh, that's quite the resume, Tom. And you're kind of the perfect person to talk to um, about all of this stuff. So let's dive right in. Um, they the slow twitch article that I mentioned at the at the beginning of the show. Uh, Dan talked about splitting the bike into you know two elements, and you know feel free to disagree with this mm-hmm. you know kind of modality for thinking about it. Um, but he talked about uh, his terms were uh, the bike above the waist, and those are. Uh, components of the geometry that influence fit uh, and bike below the waist, which are components of the geometry that influence, you know, the ride experience, handling and, uh, and that kind of stuff. So I think we've, we've spent a little bit of time talking about bike fit with, uh, with folks in the past. Um, so I want to park that unless it's, you know, super relevant to the other answers. So things like stack and reach uh, are, you know, common, very common metrics these days, much more, useful than the old kind of, you know, top tube length and seat tube length for bikes, especially with modern geometries. Um, so that's, that's something that I think pretty much everyone around the, around the globe is, is every, every frame builder is adopted. And I think it's a, it's a pretty smart standard for, for most applications. So I don't want to necessarily touch too much on that. What I'd rather spend time talking about is what Dan called below the waist. And these are, um, geometry parameters that influence that that ride experience. So, um, 
I'll let you guide this conversation, Tom, because, you know, of my admitted ignorance, I know a little bit about, you know, the implications of the front center and the the rear center and what they mean. Um, and, you know, things like fork trail, but that's the kind of stuff that I want you to dive in on because this information is available. If you're shopping for, um, you know, an off the shelf bike, or if you're going custom, you know, you as a consumer, you can pull up a geometry chart and I'll use myself as an example. When I pull up a geometry chart, I look at stack and I look at reach and <laughs> that's all I really, that's, that's all that it speaks to me because those are the only two metrics that I really understand. So let's talk about some of the others. Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, I think broadly, I, I agree with uh, I agree with the article in terms of you know, splitting it to above and below the waist is a, is a nice way of thinking about things, you know, and, and what you've what you've said. Yeah, I think I think most people when they're looking at a geometry chart, the main thing that they're interested in is, is this bike going to fit me? Yep. And of course, stack and reach are pretty much the easiest way of working out whether or not it's going to fit you. Um, uh, certainly the simplest way of doing that. A lot of the so some of the other problem with with try, trying to interpret a geometry chart is is that uh, effectively that chart is is really a way that the manufacturer is is sharing the size of the thing that they've made, um, and actually it's sometimes the uh, what's below the waist or or in terms of the geometry that's below the waist and what that means for you. Sometimes those dimensions are listed. Sometimes they won't be on a geometry chart. So that definitely, yeah, that, that's a, a hurdle that people have to overcome. Is that often if you are comparing between two different brands and thinking about this you know, below the waist geometry that we're going to talk about, it, it's actually difficult because there isn't the standard of, of stack and reach that has evolved with the above the waist sort of thing. So, um, mm-hmm. uh, and and the way that I like to think about it um, is I. Uh, it's all about so so the geometry that's below the waist if you like is is all about the vehicle handling so once the thing fits you uh, and and you can ride on it um it, it's you know how is it going to respond to a particular input you know, what's it going to feel like to ride and that that's what you want to try and understand um right it isn't entirely possible to to split them because you know your position will have an influence over how a particular geometry behaves versus another. So you sort of have to make the assumption that we're we're talking, you know, for an individual basis. As in, if you're riding in broadly the same position and you ride on a Cervelo or a Specialized, then you know the position remains constant. Let's say. Um, yes. So my point there is that actually, what is really difficult is reading a review of a bike from a journalist who has described how it rides um, because it might not be at all in line with your experience um, of, or or your description, if you like, of that very same bike. Um, That that's what I'm getting at. Yeah. If he's six, three and riding an XL and you're, you know, five feet and riding a double X S they're going to, they're going to be totally different view. Yeah. And and that's largely because of this below the waist geometry that that completely changes the the vehicle, the vehicle dynamic. Reading Dan's article, it was for me, it was interesting, just the implication that when you get to the small sizes, especially where you deal with shoe overlap and things like that, that you have to take into account. So um, if you have a frame that rides really well in a medium, um, you could be getting a completely different vehicle with a small um, 
just because of the compromises you have to make with the design. And I think it probably impacts, and this is my assumption, that it impacts more on the small size where you're dealing with just squeezing standard sizes together, like the wheels, which are always going to be the same size, squeezing them closer together, trying to make clearance for everything. But uh, it is very interesting how you can have that variation. And it's something that seeing it now, it's it's obvious that that's a thing, but it just had never crossed my mind before. Yeah, no, you're right. Uh, small bikes are the hard ones to design, really. Um, big big bikes, medium and big, are, are pretty easy in comparison. Um, certainly from a vehicle handling point of view, and that's why, you know, that's why back in the day there were all the different wheel sizes. Actually, that was really helpful from a bike design point of view. If you wanted to build a small frame, you need small wheels, and it, 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 right. then you don't have to make the same compromises. Um, and it was really just. You know, that was a nightmare from a manufacturing point of view and, and holding stock and et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, this is kind of another story as to why that died out. But, um, um, yeah, uh, it, it's definitely variable across. So within a given model of a, a bike, this, the different sizes will have these different vehicle handling performance. Although there are, you know, increasingly if you sort of look at the nitty gritty of it, you can see where certain manufacturers have made an attempt to try and preserve uh, a, a handling characteristic across a range of sizes. So if, if, uh, if well, I'll start talking about some of the key dimensions and mm-hmm. some brands, you'll see they vary them more than others, for example. Um, and, and in what, uh, I mean, I don't know, I haven't asked them, but what I would assume to be is an, an attempt to try and preserve a particular uh characteristic if you like okay so from a handling perspective tom what's uh what are the you know the the more important below the waist if we're going to keep using dan's <laughs> dance term because i think it fits uh to uh, what are the key you know the most important components of that uh, geometry that admittedly may not be on every single uh manufacturer's chart as you p- pointed out there are definitely some headline dimensions. Um, there are probably hundreds and hundreds that we could discuss, uh, but, but, but it gets it gets. <laughs> we might not have enough time for hundreds and hundreds. <laughs> exactly. So, um, uh, and to be honest, it becomes pretty academic after a certain level. So, um, okay, fair point. Uh, but yeah, one of the so one of the key ones to think about um, uh, is the wheelbase of the bike. Okay. Um, you know how what is so what's the distance between where the two tires are touching the ground, basically. Um, uh, it's often quoted as an axle-to-axle length, but of course, if the wheels are round, then hopefully that's the same as contact patch to contact patch. So, um, uh, and, and that's a really important dimension for a couple of reasons. So, so firstly, um, it, it has a very clear uh, influence. You know, it, it, basically, what that controls is um, what I like to refer to as the steering response of the vehicle. So, okay. If it's um, if you're going, people often think about it in terms of straight line stability because most of the time you travel in a straight line. So basically, whatever path you're currently on, if if the bike has got a long wheelbase, it will maintain that path more readily than one with a short wheelbase. Or the way I like to think about it is, if you're trying to steer the thing, uh, a long bike will have a slower steering response than a short bike. Okay, um, basically. And that that's kind of pretty intuitive to most people just from driving you know, vehicles around and you know, just, just from day-to-day life, people tend to instinctively understand that. Um, so, so that's a fairly simple one. Um, like but, a Volvo station wagon versus a, a go-kart kind of yeah, scenario? Yeah, exactly. One goes around corners better than the other, right? <laughs> that's right. Um, 
the other reason that that's quite important is that it's actually surprisingly sensitive. So uh, hmm. I, I would expect, so, so from my own sort of experimenting and, and um, you know, myself, but also with, with you know, people that aren't me, um, not paying customers. I, I, I did it on, on the, in the early days when people weren't paying me. But, um, you know, I would expect someone to be able to reliably feel the difference you're talking about maybe two percent, uh, a two percent variance in in wheelbase. I would expect a rider to be able to oh wow to, to, to tell the difference. Now they might not be able to articulate exactly what that difference is unless they're quite perceptive. Uh, but by the time you get up to like five percent, then I would expect it to be pretty reliable that almost anyone could say, yeah, that one feels different to that one, and this one you know, felt like it held a straight line better or, or something like that. So it's probably pretty safe to say that if you hopped on a tandem bike, um, you're going to notice a pretty considerable difference then. Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, uh, but, but you, I would expect, um, yeah, I would, I would expect you to notice a difference on, you know, much smaller scale changes than that. So the difference, I mean, the good example, I guess, is the difference between a, your kind of classic road race bike and a cross bike. Uh, where um, you can put slicks on the cross bike and ride it on the road, and to all intents and purposes, it's basically a road bike at that point. But it's that's still... what I do right now. It's, <laughs> yeah. uh, it's, it's been serving me for the last like sixteen months, and yeah. not too badly actually. Yeah, no, and and it's fine. But if you were to compare it back to back with your kind of pure race bike, you'd notice a difference, even if the tires were the same, etc., etc., etc. And one of those, one of the influences there is the fact that. On the cross bike, almost certainly the wheelbase is going to be longer uh, by a small percentage amount. Oh, interesting. Okay. Uh, and as you as you rightly point out, there is uh, an implication to this the style of ride you want to have. For example, a lot of our listeners, Tom, are, are triathletes. Yeah. Um, so in a in a triathlon TT bike where you spend even more time going in a straight line than yeah. you would obviously in a road race bike, then you, you're is the you know would it be reasonable to conclude you want a, a longer wheelbase for that setup? Yeah, uh, generally speaking, um, if I, if I know I'm designing a bike that's to all intents and purposes head down in a straight line for a long period of time, then a long bike is a good thing. Uh, it's generally mm, okay. going to um, f- give the rider more confidence. So there's a couple of areas where it gets a bit counterintuitive, which I'll come on to. So, um, but but wheelbase is definitely one of the simplest ones. Um, uh, generally speaking longer bike is going to the feedback that people are going to give is that it feels more stable um hmm. that that's gen that's a pretty uh, a, a pretty um clear trend and I, this is a little bit of a digression but just you know as you're talking think you know these thoughts keep popping into my head andrew mentioned small bikes being hard to you know hard to manufacture but also i've uh, you know as a coach i've had a lot of feedback with um from smaller athletes um especially riding deeper wheels that they feel more of that you know that the wind mm-hmm. uh steering input for and uh my my thought were kind of like what i've always been to- been told is that has to do with the you know the rider mass they have you know smaller people weigh less and so they uh you know they, there's more of an input you know there's 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 less kind of momentum to overcome some of that uh some of that wind steering and even just the side load uh, impact of it but i'm willing to bet now having you explain this uh, wheelbase uh, parameter i'm willing to bet that the wheelbase on those smaller bikes probably exacerbates that problem uh yeah it would it will definitely contribute um uh and um 
what you what i mean the the total uh result if you like for that smaller rider is, is a function of a number of things but wheelbase is is definitely a con, a, a contributing factor for sure cool um, very cool okay it just a, it sheds a little bit of light on a on a common problem i think yeah yeah absolutely one of the other dimensions that uh, that's really really critical um, is uh, the the bottom bracket height or or bottom bracket drop. Most most triathlon bikes or road bikes are they'll they'll, they'll list the bottom bracket drop. So how how the how low the bottom bracket is relative to the wheel axles generally. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, or I mean from a from a handling point of view, it's it's actually. Uh, probably more useful to think about it in terms of bottom bracket height so how 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 far away from the ground is the bottom bracket but that's um that's quite a key one um because it 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 sort of dictates the um the the tipping stability if you like of the bike so how readily will the bike tip from you know one side to the other basically okay um and the reason i mention that now is that actually there's quite an interesting oh, i think it's interesting anyway uh, quite an interesting link with wheelbase here. So um, uh, you're, you're making an assumption that when you when you change the bottom bracket height, you're changing the height of the center of mass of the vehicle from the ground, right? That's sensible, yep. Um, so again, you're kind of assuming that for a given rider, their center of mass will be a fixed distance away from that bottom bracket. So um, as you raise it, that raises too. And so... What most people instinctively uh, think um, is that the lower your center of mass, the more stable you're going to be, um, because uh, again, it, it, hopefully, it's well, it's fairly intuitive. You, you you tend to do that naturally. Everyone tends to do it naturally. If you want to be more stable, you get lower to the ground. That's right. Yeah, especially um, through corners and things. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so. What's what's quite interesting here is that that's a bit of an oversimplification of what's going on. Um, so in a static you know, snapshot of what's happening, it's absolutely true that uh, if you put the mass very close to its support, then the system is going to be more stable. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. But if you... So uh, the way I like to try and get people to imagine this, if you imagine balancing something that's tall on the tip of your finger uh you know like a a meter rule let's say balance that on the tip of your finger um and then compare that to balancing a pencil on the tip of your finger the meter rule is easier right it's easier to balance the taller thing on the end of your finger than it is the shorter thing unless i'm completely out of line but um uh typically uh, well, you can try it if you want, but I pretty much guarantee the taller things easier to balance. I think you're right. like, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about having having tried this as a child, and uh, I think I think you're right. I think that uh, I've had a similar experience, but that is that is counterintuitive. Yeah, and and so and what's going on there is that of course, in that system, the contact is is movable, right? It's your finger, and so that's sure. moving. And the reason it's easier is because you have to coordinate the movement of that in order to balance this constantly moving system. And the further away the center of mass is, the less sensitive uh, it is to the movement of your finger. Right? Cool. Yeah, okay. It's like it's like the width of bars. Yeah. So now you can start to see that if the contact patch moves around, actually it might be beneficial to be further away from it because then you're less influenced by that movement. Interesting. 
So okay. bottom bracket height can be a little bit influenced by what type of bike it is. You know, if it's the type of bike that's going to have a very mobile contact patch, so I'm thinking something that's going slow, uh, a mountain bike, a cross bike, that type of thing, then actually a higher bottom bracket would probably make the rider feel more stable, even though actually they're not, but as an overall system, they probably have more control because they're less thrown oh, around cool. by the movement of the wheels. That makes that makes sense. And then also for those bikes, like the you get the added the added benefit of better you know better better pedal clearance, so yeah. you don't smack those rocks. So yeah, exactly. I've got a picture of a penny farthing riding on single track right now, <laughs> so <laughs> that might be a bit of an extreme. But uh, no, this is uh, for me. This is so interesting because it it flips a lot of the assumption I I, I had on their head where. Um, you think that lower is better. And with automotive engineering, that's generally the case, but this is mm. the opposite requirement here, really. Yeah, well, uh, but not always. You know, so if you think about a triathlon bike or a bike that's going to travel fast, then the contact patch is going to be less mobile. So if it's a long bike, then the contact patch physically can't move as quickly because what we've just said it's got a slow steering response. So something that's long generally suits being low, in my opinion. Because the longer it gets, the less mobile the contact patch is, and therefore you're better off being kind of slow and uh, low and close to that contact patch, if you like. And the shorter and the shorter and therefore more mobile that bike is, you might actually be better being a bit higher um, uh, and a bit away from it. Um, it, it I, it's an interesting example because of it being sort of counterintuitive. Um, it's, it's where it starts to get difficult to put a number on what a particular bike should be. Um, I, there's not a, there's not necessarily a magic number for bottom bracket drop that will will be perfect for any given bike. It's more about understanding that slightly more uh, uh, complex relationship than most people think. I think that's that's what's important. Well, if you're, especially if you're, you know, if we're talking custom bikes or you, you, you spent some time talking about the fact that there is no perfect bike, or maybe it was Andrew who said that no perfect bike for the person. And that, that makes a ton of sense, right? Because you could have, you know, someone with long legs who has uh, a higher center of mass than someone who has shorter legs, even if they're the same, you know, same overall height and the same mass. Yeah. So for those two individuals, you may, you know, you may want a different bottom, uh, bottom bracket drop. Yeah, that's right. And of course, you know, with all of this and with wheelbase as well, it's not uh, you don't have free choice over all of it because of course sure. you, you don't want to hit the pedals on the ground. So there are there are other limiting factors at play, um, which means that a, a designer of a frame doesn't they can't just make up whatever they want it to be. But it's definitely a really key influence. Um, but it, it, as long as you understand that it, it's perhaps not quite as straightforward as as people's instinct often is i think That's sounds like the mother way. of all compromises here <laughs> i mean yeah we're getting there <laughs> <laughs> um okay what's next Tom? so i think the other the other really powerful one to think about uh which is probably less easily understood is the uh the trail of, of the that's created by the head angle and the fork offset yep um, and this one, I think, is uh, so it's less well understood because it's less reliably reported for start. OK. Um, so not all geometry charts will publish what the trail of a particular geometry is. Um, and sometimes 
it's it, it's sometimes miscommunicated in that sometimes they'll actually just it it's it's sort of it's the rake of the fork and they've called it the trail and you know there's a bit of uh, uh it's not exactly not, the same thing yeah yeah exactly um uh, the other so the reason that it you you can't easily measure it. You can't really get a tape measure out on your bike and measure what it is with any degree mm. of accuracy. So you, you you have to calculate it. And Tom, um, I'm sorry, I'm going to interrupt. Uh, this is just because it's a little bit of a difficult concept to to understand. It's easier it to is, have yeah. a visual. So yeah. listeners, what I'm going to do is I'm gonna I'm going to find a uh, an image maybe. Um, you know, with slow twitches permission, use one of theirs or, or find another one that's free, you know, that's, you know, free license, uh, to show what trail is. Right. Tom will take you through it, I, I think, but also it'll help to have a visual because it's not, when I first learned about trail, I, I needed to look at that picture for a couple of minutes before I, <laughs> before it made, it made intuitive sense to me. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, it, it is, it is quite a, a tricky one to get your, uh, your head around because it can be changed in a number of ways. So, I mean, basically what it is it's the it's the distance between where the steering axis is touching the ground um, and obviously that that steering axis is a, a virtual line on your bike it doesn't physically exist um, but but where that intersects the ground it's and then where the tire is physically touching the ground that's what that's mm-hmm. what trail is um, and sometimes people will, will refer to um, mechanical trail or normal trail and that's that's a, a very similar measurement, but taken rather than along the ground, it's taken perpendicular to the steering axis. Huh. Okay. Um, and I think it just depends which way your head works as to which one is easier to visualize. Um, personally, I prefer mechanical trail, but effectively, they're they're two different descriptions of what is the same thing, if you like. Sure. So the the common example I can think of that really describes this well is wheels on a shopping cart. So caster wheels. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Um, because they derive their stability because of this offset. Um, where if you push a wheel, then it's it's naturally going to want to follow this. Where if you have um, the the opposite effect, you can't uh, you can't keep the wheel oriented in the wrong direction because of the inherent stability of it. Um, so that's, that's what my mind always goes back to. And this is a part of automotive suspension geometry as well. So the caster of the, the, uh, the front suspension is often referred to, but, um, different terms, but similar concepts, I think. Yeah, it, it, that's it. It's exactly that. Yeah. What basically having that trail or, or caster or whatever you want to call it, having that means that whichever direction the vehicle is traveling in, the wheel will sort of fall in line and follow that direction basically. So it, it's, it's because of the trail or partially because of the trail that you can take your hands off the handlebars and still ride the bike and you can push it along by the saddle and not have to hold on to the handlebars and that sort of thing. Yes. Um, yeah, so it, it's quite important. And, and the reason I think it's it's important is that if we think about wheelbase controlling the steering response of the, of the vehicle, um, what trail tends to affect is the steering feedback. Um, uh-huh. and this is, this is the bit, again, it is something I think that a lot of people miss when they think about trail is that, so, you know, let's imagine a bike with a lot of trail or, a, or, or a relatively large trail value. Um, when the vehicle changes direction, it will, uh, adjust the wheel if you like very quickly as a result of that big trail value. So so broadly speaking, as trail goes up, 
um, you could say that that steering is a bit more stable in that the wheel will always follow the direction of travel. Does that make sense? It does. Yep. So it'll, um, it'll want to return back to kind of the center line of the bike as quickly as possible, more if there's a larger trail. That's right. Um, it, it's, it's actually, I mean, it, technically you just need some trail for that phenomenon to, to happen. So it's not, again, there's not like the, there's a, this, this sort of magic number. And so the, the reason that I try and think about it in terms of feedback is that you've got to remember that you're the other end of this equation because it's controlling the wheel, the front wheel, mm-hmm. which is rotating through the steering axis. And you're on the other end of that holding the handlebars. So there's a bit of a feedback loop because you could be the one steering the bike, i.e. you're traveling on a straight road and you want to take a left-hand corner and you turn the wheel slightly as a result, but it could be the other way around. It could be that the contact patch moves because you ride over some rough terrain or whatever, or a gust of wind, you know, all of this. Mm -hmm. As soon as that contact patch moves out from behind the the steering axis, if you like, relative to the direction of travel, the trail is going to have a, a an impact. And so it, it, it controls what you feel the bike doing through your hands. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a really, that's a really cool explanation of what it does. Cause you know, I, after reading this article from Dan, I kind of, I kind of had a sense of what it does, but the fact that, yeah, that's, that's a really good way of looking at it. So that's the that's the key. I mean, the key with all with understanding this below the waist geometry is you, you've got to always link it back to what that means for a rider, because actually, in terms of keeping the bike in inverted commas stable, that's pretty easy. Because actually, as long as you have some trail, and if you look at bikes, you know they all have broadly a similar wheelbase because of the constraints of putting wheel. You know, they kind of work. It, it, it's relatively easy to build what would be referred to as a a fairly stable system um it's this gray area with what that means for a for a given individual and and trail gets interesting because um so if we think about a very rigid brief in terms of a bike so like a road racing bike it's one of the simplest design briefs if you like because they all get ridden over the same terrain Mm -hmm. Uh, you know roads are roads pretty much um, and uh, they all get ridden over at similar speeds and you know, similar gradients, et cetera, et cetera. And they typically, if you look at the geometry of a road bike, they don't vary by a huge amount, um, and they haven't done for quite a long time. They, they, you know, it, it's the oldest type of bike, the most mature design, and they've iterated towards a wheelbase that works, a bottom bracket drop that works, a trail that works. But I definitely know people and, and know lots of people who would describe have exactly the same description of how a bike feels to ride at completely opposite ends of what you would consider a normal trail range. So um, vast majority of road bikes, we're going to have a trail of somewhere between 56 and 59 millimeters is, is typical. Okay. Uh, I know people who would ride a, um, a, a road bike with a trail of 50 millimeters and say that it felt really good, really nice, really stable. And then other people who would have exactly that same description of a bike with, let's say, 63 millimeters of trail. Um, so, so completely opposite ends of what we'd be considered a broadly normal range. So is this for, the same person that would have that experience? or you know, No, for, different people. Um, so, okay. so different people have this kind of okay. slightly different requirement 
for feedback as to what they like. And ah, okay. the way I, the way to think about it, I think is if the bike has less trail, you will get less positive feedback from it. Sure. So you'll still get the feedback, but it won't be quite as clear. And for some people, that's something that they like because, you know, let's imagine, uh, let's imagine that you're, you're, you're taking a, a high speed descent on a road bike and you come around a corner and you realize you've overcooked it a little bit and you need to change your line. If the bike's got less trail, you can, you, you've got, it's almost like you've got a bit more control. You know, you, you turn the bars, the bike, you don't feel the bike kind of kick quite so much and you can make yeah, the change. Fight you for it. Yeah. And as a result, you might describe that as feeling a bit more stable because it was almost like <laughs> you were the dominant one. Yeah. Okay. Um, but then the same situation uh, you, you can see how actually someone else might prefer the bike to have much more of a mind of its own, you know, and, and when you take that corner, you set that line and that's it, the bike's on that. And, and it's going to give you very clear feedback if you try and come off it for whatever reason. Oh man, it's so subjective. It's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's, but that's the big problem is that you, you can have, and that's why it's so difficult to interpret often what's going on because, because ultimately there's these massive sort of influences that are yeah entirely subjective the big advantage of understanding them is that you, you can you, you know you can at least start to piece together experiences that you might have had riding a bike and 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 try and attribute those to some of these key dimensions and then you can you can build up a picture of what works for you um rather than just what might work for the person reviewing that bike. And the analogy I would use there would be, you know, in my fit experience, if I, you know, if somebody's asking me for a remote, you know, frame size recommendation and I know that they fit, you know, brand X in size Y, and then I can just easily look up stack and reach, I can then fa be fairly confident in saying that they'll fit their new, you know, their new dream bike in whatever frame size they've picked or not fit it based on that. So this is, you know, kind of a similar, similar approach where you look at the, maybe the trail of the bike you really loved and find, uh, you know, look for a bike or have one made that has a similar trail. Yeah, that's it. And, 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 um, it, it can be, a, it, I mean, it can be a difficult thing to do partly because, um, in, in, a, invariably, if you've got three different bikes, they'll all have slightly different geometries and it's probably a combination of all of these dimensions that are slightly different. And so it can mm, be quite okay. difficult to attribute uh, a particular sensation to, to one of these, but the better you understand this sort of um, behavior of the bike, it becomes easier and easier to try and, and, and make those, those links for you personally. Um, sure. uh, I mean, the other difficulty is that, typically bike designers are trying to design a bike that most people will get on with. And so that's why most road bikes have got a very, very similar trail because it's right in the middle of what seems to work. Uh, so, you know, it's actually quite rare that you, someone would have ridden two bikes back to back that are identical in all ways, but one or at opposite ends of a, 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 um, a particular range. And, and yeah, that, that's tricky. And, and that's where, you know, that's where, ultimately uh, for for a customer they're probably going to have to start trusting the person designing that bike if it's a custom bike or or you know have a um, be in line with the the philosophy of the brand who designed it and that sort of thing so while you're describing this uh there were a couple of things that came to mind so first of all just in terms of a description of the mechanical stability or the system stability of the bike uh with 
again, going back to race cars, which is where mm. a lot of my experience comes from, you see the in-car views for a lot of drivers and it could be an identical car with a different setup. And one driver prefers to be fighting the wheel the whole time. So just going back and mm. forth and it looks like they're trying to shake up a paint can. And uh, there's another driver who might you know, otherwise have an identical car, but different suspension setup where they're going through the corner very smooth. And, um, and that seems like exactly what you're talking about. We're just, it's the preference. Yeah, that that is exactly it. You know, it's that different feedback that you're getting. In fact, that's a, it's a useful analogy for, for, because most people drive cars, you know, so the, the kind of, if a a low trail bike is going to be more you know, with the power steering turned right up where it's all really twitchy and light and uh, whereas a, a longer trail bike is going to be much more of the, the kind of steady state one. Um, yeah, it's a good analogy. So there's another point that um, that kind of came up just, and this is something you might be able to relate to with your aerospace background, but uh, aircraft are usually designed to have some inherent stability. So for example, mm-hmm. if the pilot were to pass out or just lose control or just lose interaction with the controls, the planes would typically maybe not return to level flight, but they would go stable. Um, so they would just continue on whatever path, whatever path they're, they're on within reason. But, uh, yeah. the one aircraft that they went against this design philosophy, or maybe the first one that they did was the F 16, which was designed in the mid eighties. And from a control standpoint, uh, they had designed it to be unstable. So it was, uh, the, and the reason for that is because you can change directions much faster. The downside is that you need some kind of computer control in order to maintain level flight. Um, so yeah. it's making thousands of micro adjustments per second. Um, so I wonder, you know, just thinking this would kind of lose the purity of this part, but looking long term, would there be a situation where you could have a computer controlled bike where it's <laughs> this super responsive steering input, um, but it self corrects and it maintains this level of stability um it's just kind of a you know food for thought but just fly by wire bicycle (laughs) yeah basically yeah i mean i mean it is in in theory i mean often it's the human that makes the bike unstable um (laughs) you know it it, it, it's relatively easy to to make a bike that you can roll down a hill and it will just roll down to the bottom of the hill and it will self-correct and it will end up you know staying upright all the way down to the bottom of the hill um the human confuses things because uh it i mean uh, partly because of the center of mass, it, it, it tends to inherently put the mass so high that you, you know you, it's 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 got that tipping instability inherently. Um, uh, but also, you know, and this is the big difference between cycling and and you know automotive or you know like a motorbike is that the human is the power source and it's not a constant power source. And if you pedal, if you've got a choppy pedal stroke, that's going to do very different things to the bike than if you, you know, you can hold a really steady position and, and produce a much cleaner torque if you like. And, and so, yeah. Um, yes, I think it probably could. Um, it, it, it would just be, um, you'd have to be dialed into an individual rider because often it's that, it's that rider that, that is the dominant influence over how stable the bike is or not. That's awesome. Um, I think that was, uh, I've got more questions about geometry, but I think that was a really, um, you know, that was a lot of information to digest. And I also want to make sure that we have time to talk about um, custom bike and additive manufacturing in the kind of, you know, our rough time slot mm-hmm. that we have. So yeah. let's, let's start with, uh, with custom bikes. I mean, I think we've set a really good, um, 
you know, a really good base of understanding of why this geometry matters. So what can you do with a, with a custom build that you, you know, and you mentioned that manufacturers of, you know, big brand manufacturers are kind of converging to the, to a certain mean. Um, so what can you do with custom that you, you know, wouldn't find, uh, off the rack as it were? Typically, uh, what I do is, is it, it's, it's about trying to translate what an individual rider likes doing and, and what that might mean they need from a particular geometry and then just really trying to optimize that. Um, it, it depends. So that, that's, I guess what I focus on is that relationship between the, the, the bike and the, the person riding it. Um, it, it, you know, in many ways I'm sort of, I'm aiming to produce a bike that is quite difficult to describe by that rider in that it should just be good. You know, it shouldn't, <laughs> it shouldn't, in fact, shouldn't necessarily be remarkable in one particular way. Cause often, you know, if a bike feels really, really reactive, it, it's probably cause it's not very stable and it's like grabbing your attention all of the time. Yeah. Um, and, and, um, so, so often what I'm aiming for is that slightly to produce a bike that is actually quite difficult to put your finger on what's good about it. It just kind of works for a given rider. Um, but of course that's not always what people want. You know, some people might want something that just puts a smile on their face. Um, and they want to feel like they're racing everywhere they go. Um, so you <laughs> sure. can then, you can tweak you know, certain bits of the geometry to give them that, that feeling, that sensation, which is ultimately what's going to make them enjoy riding the bike more. So yeah, it could be about putting a smile on someone's face. It could be you know, entirely performance orientated. You know, uh, someone's racing and they, they want to, um, you know, improve a, a particular aspect of their performance. And, and, and it might be that I can help by, uh, creating a, a, a bike that is just that much more, uh, confidence inspiring for them. So, you know, I don't know, a triathlete, and it means that they can corner, you know, 90% of the time they don't have to come out of the extensions to take a corner and cool. little things like that, that over the course of a, of, of an event like a triathlon, that's going to make a meaningful difference. Um, so it, it's about optimizing those, those small sort of, uh, well, it's a famous term now, isn't it? Marginal gains. That's what it's about. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I noticed that you work, it looks like at least on the website exclusively in titanium. I mean, well, your the forks are carbon, but the, the frames are titanium. Why, uh, why that material? Um, so I do predominantly work with titanium. I still do, um, uh, do work with, with, with other materials. So it's predominantly steel, steel or titanium. Um, okay. Uh, titanium for me, so for a number of reasons, um, in fact, uh, the, the forks aren't all going to be carbon anymore. There's a, the website needs a bit of an update. There's a titanium fork coming. Um, Fair. Uh, so it's a really versatile material from a, from a design point of view in that it, it has, uh, its mechanical properties are relatively unique in that I, I can, I, I can use that with that one material. I can, I can produce a, a, a very broad range of um structural performance it can it can you know you can build a bike that is um pretty light stiff uh, and feels you know to a certain extent in line with not exactly the same but in line with a you know what people have come to expect from a modern sort of carbon race bike if you like um or you can build a, a much more traditional feeling bike um you know that's that's a bit more flexible in certain ways um so it's a very versatile material from that point of view and it uh it, it does have this slight and uh, it 
I find it a bit painful when people refer to, you know, steel is real or what's the titanium one you call it magic, <laughs> but it does have a, a slightly strange, um, some slightly strange characteristics where it, it does have an inherent ride quality that isn't quite the same on any other material. Um, and, and to be honest, okay. I haven't been able to quantify that, um, but it's definitely there. Um, uh, so, so that's one reason it's, it's very versatile, um, design material, uh, entirely selfishly I, I i like i'm a bit of a purist in terms of being able to i like seeing how things are made I, I like um everything being on show and exposed and and you can do that with titanium you know you don't need to paint it um you can of course and you can anodize it and, and do all sorts of finishes that make it look lovely but just from a mm-hmm. purist point of view i enjoy that about the material yeah Naked titanium is beautiful. I agree. Yeah. It's it's a really it's a really pretty look. I'm with you there. And um, you know, it, I, 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 whilst I've done some work with composites, you know, in 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 other parts of my life, uh, I it, it's a relatively you know, there's there's a lot of waste involved with composites um, that actually mm, okay. I, I don't you know I, I have a workshop that's that's close to my house. Um, it's just me who works there. Uh, I don't have loads of space. Um, I don't want to generate loads of waste, and you know, there's there's an element of that. It's it's quite a um, a clean material to work with from that point of view as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other the other influence is that um, I do use additive manufacturing quite a lot, um, and and titanium is particularly well suited to uh, metal three D printing, if you like. Yeah, I definitely want to talk to you about that. I think that's uh, that's. A super exciting um, area for you know frame and component development, as we talked about in kind of before we started recording. Um, you know, I, I talked to our mutual friend uh, David Tilbury Davis quite a bit, and every time we talk about bikes, he talks about his uh, his vision of of a customer coming into a store, getting scanned, getting you know maybe fitted on on like a, a retool or a similar system, and then having the store basically three D print them a complete bicycle that's exactly right for them. So that's kind of the, you know, the Jetsons version of uh, maybe what we're doing right now. But uh, yeah, tell us where you're, how, how you're using uh, 3D printing or additive manufacturing and, and which components you're making out of it and, you know, maybe where you see it going. Uh, yeah, so I started using it um, a number of years ago now. Uh, I can't remember how many, probably four or five years ago. Um, uh, and, and I didn't really know why I started. I just had this feeling that there was something in it. <laughs> Um, uh, and, <laughs> no. and um, the more I looked into it, uh, the more it interested me on a, you know, from a, just from me being a bit of a nerd point of view. Um, but yeah, so I currently use it to produce the, the junctions of a frame. So uh, the head tube, the bottom bracket, the dropouts, the, the seat cluster, um, those junctions are, are, are printed um, and then joined together using drawn titanium tubing that, that's welded to the junctions um cool and i'm also starting to incorporate components as well so cranks uh fork seat post stem um those are all starting to be things that are kind of off you know by default on the bikes that i produce um and and uh for me the thing that it does is is it allows me to um optimize the the structure of the frame in a way that you you, could, you can't really without 3D printing. So the, the the way those junctions are, the shape of them, the, the way the wall thickness changes and the geometry of them, it wouldn't be possible to manufacture them in any other way. Um, 
so so there are a few gains to be had there in terms of the the kind of structural efficiency of the the joint or just to some extent the weight you can strip a bit of weight out of it um in some applications not always um uh and it, it also allows me to incorporate some more sophisticated features so i uh, you know, little things but everything's important on a custom bike so you know um some integrated seat clamps and and the cable routing is is uh, easier to or mm. um, i say easier it, it, you know drilling holes in structures is never a nice thing to do um, <laughs> but by building the cable routing into the junction i can appropriately reinforce the structure so that you haven't got the stress rises and and that sort of thing yeah right. um, so it's it's just a, it allows me to kind of dial up the sophistication of the design um, and it also helps me produce things um, more effectively. So, effect, you know, I'm, I'm a little way off David's perfect model, but <laughs> basically when I design a bike, I, I design a, uh, a model in, in, in a CAD environment, a, a, a 3D you know, software environment. Um, and that, that model is, is uh, it's, it's what's known as a parametric model. So if you wanted a bike from me, I would take some measurements and, 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 uh, you know, get some key inputs and I put those inputs into the model. And then as long as I've built my model, right, uh, the data is ready to print. And then all I have to do is cut the tubes and to the right length and weld it together. So it, it, it can help me make the process of designing a bike and, and fabricating it a little bit more time efficient, which is great as a one man operation. Mm. Um, uh, so, so that that's uh, that's another key advantage for me. Um, in terms of the components, it's great for me to have full control over where the rider is touching the bike. That's that's really what it's all about. Um, so, you know, uh, just little things like setback on the seat post. Um, I, I prefer to have a saddle clamped in the middle of the rails because they just tend to work better that way. Sure. Um, but I might want a particular seat tube angle because I want to have a particular size tire on the wheel. And so there's an interference point between the wheel, uh, the tire and the, the back of the seat tube. So my seat tube angle might be fixed. And so I can then maybe tweak the offset of the seat post so that the uh, saddle is ended up you know, in what I deem to be the right position for the fit. Um, so little things like that or crank length it can be great to vary crank length outside of the realms of you know 170 or 175 um so uh yeah having control over that uh, particularly for you know a lot of um well small bikes you mentioned it before um short people have got much shorter legs than short cranks are relative to long cranks yeah um so yeah um non-standard crank lengths is great um having control over the the so we talked about trail um that that key dimension is in part influenced by the rake of the fork but if you're buying a carbon fork you 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 can only get whatever rake the mold is um whereas by making my own fork i can control that on an individual basis along with tire clearance and cable routing and do you want mud guards or not and etc cetera, etc cetera. so mm. um so for me additive manufacturing is about yeah having having control on a one like genuine control on a one-off basis um of what gets made um being able to optimize it in a way that you couldn't do anyway any other way 
uh, and and improving uh, my process. Really, I want to. Uh, I'm in the business of making. Let's be honest. What are very expensive bikes? Uh, I want to make sure that each one is the very best thing that I can put forward. Um, uh, and and using that cutting edge technology helps me do that. So when I look at this, I see almost the same kind of leap in terms of the technology that uh, that carbon was to aluminum or steel tubes, where carbon allowed this customization of the the shape so that you could have a more integrated design. Your joints weren't just welded butt joints anymore, but they were now um, these smooth sweeping structures. And you have taken additive manufacturing and you and used it and leveraged it so that you can apply more technology and more design to a given frame because carbon there are so many benefits to it, but the cost of a mold is just phenomenal. So to have a fully custom carbon bike is just, it doesn't make sense. Like I don't think at any point, unless it's 3d printed carbon, would it ever be economical to do that? Um, so your, your bikes really take the next leap in terms of incorporating the technology to provide this customization. Yeah, I think so. Um, that, that's certainly what I'm going for. Um, I, I t- you know, I considered, um, as I mentioned, I considered working in composite when I first started making bikes and, and messed around with it a little bit, you know, just for myself, and and quite quickly decided that wasn't the way I wanted to do things because of what I touched on before. But also, you know, I felt like, you know, if I'm really going to optimize this structure using this material. There's a huge amount of design time. There's a huge amount of testing and validation that would really need to happen on a one-off basis to 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 be you know to stand there and say yes, I've optimized that to the best that I can. Um, of course, you know there are people who make one-off um, carbon bikes, and I, and I don't mean to take away from what they do, and they a lot of them do a great job. But um, you know, if, if you're if you're going to be a purist about using you know, a true monocoque construction uh, construction for, for you know, which which ultimately is probably the most efficient use of that material, then yeah, it just doesn't really work for a, a one-off, um, uh, or or certainly not as efficiently um, as I'm able to get this to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that that speaks to me certainly when you're talking about waste. Um, you know, the fact that this is. You know, I imagine aluminum or titanium is, you know, can be recycled just like steel and aluminum can, although I don't know that for a fact. So the fact that you're, you know, you're, it's a much, it's a much lower waste kind of process. And obviously you have, you know, probably a lower carb or, um, you know, uh, I was going to say carbohydrate, <laughs> a, a lower, a lower carbon footprint. Um, I guess I'm hungry, a, a lower carbon footprint, uh, than, than using, you know, uh, using composites and all the, you know, the adhesives and the, um, the binding agents that are involved there that are, you know, probably not the most environmentally friendly always. Yeah. It, um, the, I mean, it's, uh, it takes a lot of energy to get titanium from its ore into its useful yeah, that's form. A fair point. So, so I don't know about the full, the full life cycle, you know, of, of the material uh, that, that would be a more involved study, but, um, but yeah, it, it, it certainly, um, um, by the time I'm using it, it's less wasteful. <laughs> uh, I, I can't speak for the, the, the wider supply chain. Um, that's probably more complicated than I know. But um, uh, yeah, certainly by the time it gets to me, then then it, it, it's a relatively clean um, process, and and I can evolve it quickly as well. That's key. So you know, if you if you want to tweak uh, the design of a carbon part that's molded, you've got to make a new mold, and and then um, that mold will have a shelf life. Um, uh, and you kind of have to constantly be doing those things. Whereas, you know, for me, if uh, it's quite common that, I, you know, and it might be features that people never notice, it's nearly always internal features, but 
you know, on a, on a, on a frame by frame basis, I might tweak the model a little bit to maybe improve how that bit prints or how I can weld it or, you know, how it's, how it's, how it's machined to have various threads cut in it, for example. And I can tweak that just by uh, changing a thing on a computer. I don't have to spend thousands on a new tool or uh, I just have to spend thousands on the parts instead. But, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so, um, I, I, I have found that, uh, it's, if you fully embrace it, um, and you kind of build that, um, technology into every aspect of what you do, then it can be really useful. Um, I think the challenge for a lot of people is that it's still incredibly expensive. And so if you just sort of think, oh, well, I've got this machine thing, let's just, let's just print that. It's almost certainly not going to work because, uh, you know, the, the, it's going to cost however many times more. Um, and, um, almost certainly when you start learning how to design for it, there are going to be enormous challenges with understanding how strong or not the material is. And, yeah. and so a lot of people are put off in that way. For me, it's, it's, um, it's almost an all or nothing thing. You know, if you know that's what you're doing and you fully embrace what you can do with it, then it can add value in other ways. Yeah, that was going to be the, it was actually Andrew's question. He had to um, run off to another meeting, but um, the, uh, the, you know, the reliability of the process, because it is new, right? And anytime you, you have a new kind of, you know, manufacturing or new design um, process, there's, there are going to be questions about reliability. Obviously, famously, carbon was, mm-hmm. was pretty, pretty terrible when it first came out because of, you know, internal delaminations and things that you couldn't see that could potentially leave you on the side of the road. I was, I was reading articles about, I'm sure you've, you've, you know, you're familiar with it, but the, the old four spoke spinner G wheels yeah. about how they would sometimes just explode in mid ride for no obvious reason and how they would like, they riveted them in parts, which created stress concentrations and they did all sorts of like, you know, very questionable from an engineering perspective things. Um, and these things failed spectacularly sometimes. Yeah. Uh, so whenever you're, you're doing something new, you're, you're going to get those kind of questions. So what's your process for making sure that it's, you know, well, it's safe to ride more than anything else. Yeah. It's, it's a really important part of it. Um, I mean, it's important for, uh, I'd like to think that anyone who makes bikes, um, or, or any product is, is, is doing their, their bit to check that it is, you know, fundamentally a, a sound thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, in my case, um, it, it's quite challenging with with additive manufacturing because it's not so widespread. There isn't really, you know, you can't just look up, oh, what's the strength of this material, or what are its mechanical properties, um, and you know, it will vary from supplier to supplier. So um, I, I don't have enough money to have a three D printing machine that can can print metal myself, um, and so I'm, mm-hmm. I'm I'm I use um, you know manufacturing centers that do, and depending on what machine it is and what settings they use when they print it, you will get slightly different mechanical properties. And so there's a, well, in short, I have a very expensive scrap pile because I have had to, in order to understand that, you know, I've had to make a thing and test it. And, and um, uh, over the time that I've adopted additive manufacturing, I've, I've built up an understanding of, what those mechanical properties are so that I can design with a bit more freedom in terms of not necessarily having to test 100% of things that I might make because I've got a good enough understanding of, of what's going on. But, but, but I'm, um, because of it being new, I'm, I'm quite stringent about if I come up with a new design 
a new idea, a new product, then ultimately it comes down to yeah, making a prototype, um, testing it. And, and in the bicycle industry, there's actually quite a well-documented uh, um, uh, series of load cases for all sorts of different components. You know, there's these industry standard tests, which, um, so, you, you know, um, you can, those, those, those loads and, and, and those tests are quite well documented and you can decide whether you want to exceed it by a, a certain safety margin or, or whatever. So, um, so that's what I do. Um, if I come up with something new, if I use a different manufacturer, um, or, just you know things like the frames which are which which are much more of a known quantity for me i've been making them for a while i'll still periodically just make one uh, a sort of random sample and and maybe i'll i'll make it a bit of an extreme geometry or i i won't be quite as strict with my purging on the weld or you know i'll do i'll I'll build effectively what i'd say is a worst case um and i'll test that you know I'll, i'll i'll destroy that um to find out where where the line is um so that I know that I'm always on the right side of it. Yeah, I mean, it's such a, it's such a an interesting technology, and looking ahead at it, um, I think it's it's going to play uh, an increasingly bigger role. Um, Tom, this has been a really interesting conversation. In fact, you know, you mentioned uh, when things settle down, you'll you'll go back to teaching. Um, if you if you ever offer those courses remotely, um, then then send me a line because this is something that I find you know super interesting. And even if I'm not going to become a, a custom frame builder, which I don't think is in my, is in the cards. Uh, understanding this, this technology better is something that's, uh, you know, b- purely from, well, not purely, but from a personal interest and a professional kind of development thing, I think is, I would, uh, I would love to do. No, I'll, I'll be sure to do that. And, uh, thanks for, thanks for letting me, uh, get all nerdy and drone on a little bit. <laughs> No, this is this is great, and I think our our audience really will uh, really will appreciate it too. So, Tom, if uh, if people want to look at the beautiful bicycles that you have on your website um, and on your social channels, where can they find you? What's the website, and which uh, which of the social media channels do you use? So, uh, yeah, so our website is um, sturdycycles.co.uk. That's uh, S T U R D Y, and then cycles as in bicycles. Yep. Um, uh, website's probably overdue a little bit of an update at the moment so I'm most active uh, currently on on Instagram um, so that's the best place and, and one day I'll get around to uh, one day I'll get around <laughs> to updating the website so um, right. yeah Instagram and Facebook's a good bet as well perfect um, and of course listeners I'll uh, I'll post links to uh, to both of those channels uh, or all three of those channels in our show notes and on the website so you can have a look um, and uh, get in touch with with Tom if you're if you're in the market for a really, really pretty, really functional, you know, bespoke bicycle. Sounds great. As always, uh, thanks for listening. And uh, if you like the show, tell your friends, hit subscribe on your preferred app, rate and renew us, rate and review us in that app as well, please. And uh, consider supporting us on Patreon if you like what you hear. Thanks, everyone. I like that term, newly found ignorance. There's so much irony buried in there. <laughs> well, that's the you know it's the Dunning Kruger effect, right? Like you you think you know until you realize you don't know. Yep. You don't know. You don't know much. what you don't know. Yeah. Exactly.